1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. As we work our way through the passage today, we're going to learn, number one, about the message of love. Number two, we're going to learn about the source of love. And then number three, the demonstration of love. The message of love, the source of love, and the demonstration of love. As John begins this passage, he uses a phrase that he has used throughout his gospel. And it is the message that you have heard from the beginning. The message heard from the beginning was the gospel. The same gospel passed down to the people in John's community is also the same gospel that was received by one another, was received by John himself, all of the apostles. So loving one another then should not be understood as some complex aspect of our sanctification. Loving one another is actually foundational, basic, elementary, and fundamental. Now, while we might have a challenge in loving a particular individual, you know that person you're thinking of right now. Don't say you don't. The posture of a Christian's heart should be one that is bent towards love. We shouldn't have to twist one another's arms to do something as foundational as loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Whether they be church members, non-church members, or even lost people, the natural bent of a Christian's heart, someone who has moved from death to life, is one of loving others. And the example that John gives to describe one who does not love in this passage is actually the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. So I'm actually going to read Genesis 4, 1 to 8, because it will help us understand the context in which John is writing. This is what Moses tells us in Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. 
And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The question is, God accepted Abel's offering, and he did not accept Cain's offering, so why? Now, it would be a mistake for us to view Genesis 4 and think that somehow God's disapproval with Cain was the offering itself. It was not. It's not that God prefers fruit over meat. That's not the point of what Moses is trying to tell us. God isn't displeased, ultimately, with the object of the offering. He's displeased with the heart of the one who brought the offering before him. It's said he accepts Abel's offering because of his righteousness. So Cain is, is not a bad character in the Bible because he murders Abel, okay? Even though that's a horrible thing to do and it's something that we should condone. He's a bad character in the Bible because his deeds were evil. His heart was evil. And the overflow of his evil heart is what led to the murder of his brother. The jealousy that he had towards Abel led to hate, which ultimately led to murder. Now, this is the only direct reference in 1 John to an Old Testament story. And the reference makes it very clear. Cain belonged to the evil one. Now, that does not come explicitly from Genesis 4, but it was discussed in other non-canonical Jewish literature that John and the community that he was writing to would have been aware of. But we can certainly infer from reading Genesis 3 and 4 that Cain had evil in his heart. And I love the way, by the way, that John utilizes this story to show us that the New Testament authors were very familiar with the Old Testament text that you and I read today. The story of Cain and Abel show us that evil and righteous deeds stem from the condition of our heart. If a Christian claims love but gives evidence of hate, then it actually proves that their heart is full of hate rather than love. And John, in his no-nonsense approach throughout his epistle, makes it clear that hate is incompatible with being a follower of Christ. Now, verse 13 seems a little out of place within the context of the passage that we've read. The world in this passage would mean not only any false teacher, which we have come across throughout studying this epistle, but it would also be these other Christians, which I put in quotes, who went out from the true believers. 
So the world in this passage is not only the false teachers, but those who were once following Christ, but who left the faith. False Christians, if you will. In the same way that Cain hated Abel because of his righteousness, the false teachers and the false Christians will also hate true Christians because of their righteousness. So brothers and sisters, what does this mean? This means that we should not be ashamed of our pursuit of holiness. We should not be ashamed of our pursuit of righteousness. As long as we are approaching our sanctification with humility rather than with pride, if the world hates us for obeying Christ and pursuing holiness and pursuing righteousness, then the world has done exactly what Jesus and John tells us they will do. Hate us. John says in verse 14 that a trait or a mark of salvation is love for the brothers. In contrast, hate is what would characterize someone who is clearly not in Christ. Now the present tense verb in verse 14 indicates to us that this is supposed to be an ongoing love for other believers. That is the sign that they have passed from death to life. Not that just at one time we made a decision to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, but we consistently, ongoingly, in the present, love our brothers and sisters in Christ. John is saying this is a mark or evidence or a characteristic of following after Christ, of being a true Christian, is presently loving brothers and sisters. Now the question becomes, how is this love for brothers and sisters in Christ best demonstrated? And did you know one of the best and one of the primary ways that the love for brothers and sisters in Christ is demonstrated is through the commitment a believer makes to the local church. While it's not impossible, it's difficult to consistently love brothers and sisters in Christ outside of the context of a local church. Loving brothers and sisters in Christ is demonstrated primarily by one's commitment and engagement to the church which they claim as their own. This morning when Donald and Sarah and Joe gave powerful testimonies of how Christ transformed their life, I hope you picked up on what they said at the end. They are making a commitment to this body. They are viewing all of us as their brothers and sisters in Christ. And the best way that they can demonstrate their love to us is by consistently being here. Loving one another. Sharing one another's burdens. Holding one another accountable. So two questions to consider based on what John is teaching here. Number one, who do you actually know in this church? I don't mean biographical information, height, weight, all those things. By the way, as an aside, when we have staff meetings every other Monday, we do like an um, icebreaker question. And one week I said, I want you to tell your name and your height and weight as we go around the room. That did not go over very well. I don't plan on using that one again. By the way, 59180, in case you want to know. 
So who do you actually know in this church? Like, who have you shared your burdens with? Who knows your story? Who comes alongside of you when tragedy strikes in your family to pray for you? Who holds you accountable when you're struggling with a particular sin? So number one, who do you know in this church? But also, number two, who knows you in this church? It's really easy if you're an outgoing person to know everyone else and be available for them. But are you making yourself available to that same type of commitment? Who knows your burdens? Who knows what you struggle with? See, this is actually supposed to be a routine aspect of what it means to be a member of a local church. Now, historically, Baptist churches have used church covenants as a way to say what the members agree to do for one another. We're actually working on updating our church covenant right now. But listen to some of these statements that we are considering making a part of our covenant. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is what church members are actually supposed to do for one another. Your church is really supposed to be your life. So... I say this as lovingly as I can. If you want a church where you can just slip in and slip out, this is not going to be the place for you. Because we are covenanting with one another to say, when my brother or sister is hurting, I'm going to be there. When I'm hurting, I can count and trust on my brothers and sisters to be there for me. Loving the body of Christ is much more effective when we listen when we pray, when we bear one another's burdens, when we rejoice together in a casual commitment to the church makes those types of relationships virtually impossible. So we, as a church, First Baptist Dothan, want to push back against the narrative that is out there that the only thing that matters is my personal relationship with Jesus. Not true. Not biblical. Here's an excerpt from a small book that we actually give away sometimes. It's called, What If I Don't Feel Like Going to Church? Of course, that doesn't describe any of us in here, but hypothetically speaking. Here's what he says. I've often felt like staying home on a Sunday. I've pulled up in the parking lot with a longing to be alone. I've drawn a deep breath before walking in the door. And I've sat in the congregation weary and overwhelmed. A song begins, and while it's not my favorite, I noticed a friend deeply engaged, and I'm thankful she's encouraged. My pastor starts preaching, and while he's no Athenian orator, he knows us, he's been praying for us, and he's prepared his message for us. He's our shepherd, assigned by Christ to this flock in this field for this season. Communion begins. And I realize I've been keeping my sins to myself. 
instead of resting them in the Lord's hands. We close in prayer, and I'm still tired, but somehow refreshed. These are my people, because these are God's people. The whole experience pulls me out of myself and draws my soul back to the gospel. You know, churches always talk about vision and values and mission statements. Those are all great things. But very simply, if you really want to know my vision for our church, it's very simple. We would be the type of church that we love being together so much that we rearrange our lives to be here together on Sundays. That's it. That no matter what is going on, yes, I'm not saying you can't go on vacation. Everybody take a deep breath. Don't get angry. But that you would make it such a priority that you would rearrange everything to ensure that if at all possible, you would gather with your family on Sunday. John, in this passage, contrasts love with hate. And he echoes the teaching of Jesus in verse 15. Now, on Wednesday evenings, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount for months now. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, 21 and 22. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus is just as intense in his teaching as John is when John says, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So the message of love is what should characterize us as brothers and sisters in Christ, which leads to the second point, the source of our love. The beauty of Christianity is that our leader, Jesus, is not asking his followers to do something that he did not do himself. In fact, more than likely, none of us will actually lay down our lives for a brother or sister in Christ. The death of Christ was the ultimate demonstration of love, and it serves as the source of our love one for another. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says this, Yet we can say this, that if the measure of love is what it gives, then there never was such love as God showed to sinners at Calvary. Nor will any subsequent love gift to us cost God so much. Paul says in Romans 5.8, But God shows his love for us, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. If you are in Christ today, know that he loves you. And as Paul says in Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is gospel truth. There is nothing that you can do that will separate you from the love of God if you are in Christ. Think about this just for a moment. God, in His holiness, as we studied the doctrine of God just a few weeks ago, God cannot find 
complete satisfaction in any object that falls short of absolute perfection. We know that all of us fall short of absolute perfection. So God loves sinners so much that he was willing to send Jesus to die the death that we deserve so that any that repent of their sin and believe in faith receive the righteousness of Christ. So now, when God loves us, he sees the righteousness of his Son in us. He sees the absolute perfection of Jesus in us. So why would God do this? To stay faithful to his attributes. He loved us so much, he loved humanity so much, that even though we fell short of that absolute perfection, he provided a way for us to be loved by him through the death of his son and the imputed righteousness that we now receive because of it. So in God's eyes, he can love the believer because of Jesus' perfection. How is this a demonstration of God's love, you might ask? God didn't have to do this. He didn't. We know that God was in perfect fellowship with His Son and His Spirit, having everything that He needed. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and following the entire Bible is a gift that God has given us. The whole story of God's revelation to us is a gift. It is not a right that we earned. God looks at the Christian and he sees the righteousness of Jesus in us. So now in line with God's nature, he can find complete satisfaction in Christians, not because of anything we have done, but because of what Christ has done in us. Jesus' atoning death makes it possible for us to be loved by a holy and perfect God. And in a covenant relationship, each party pledges their commitment of love to the other party. Our response to God is one of commitment, and His response to us is one of commitment and love. This is why Paul can say, again, in Romans 8, Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Christian, God is for you. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. And he has sealed you with his spirit. You are his forever. Our response to this act of self-giving is to now lay down our lives for one another. Which leads us to our third and final point, the demonstration of love. Now, John gives a practical example of how love can be demonstrated and how failure to demonstrate love would bring up the question of whether God's love actually abides in a person. He says in verse 17, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Now, first off, what does John mean by the world's goods? Because as selfish people, we're trying to figure out if we could somehow get out of this category. Well, if I don't have the world's goods, I don't have to do this. That's not the way we should be thinking. 
This would describe someone who has adequate, but not necessarily lavished, livelihood. So it doesn't mean that you have to make $500,000 or more a year in order for this apply to you. John does not put down a net worth minimum or an average income for this to now apply to you. He simply says the world's goods. Now, I also don't believe that John is teaching that if you're barely making it, you should forego your mortgage payment in order to help a brother or sister in Christ. So let's avoid both extremes here. Use common sense. But the scariest part of this verse is the phrase, closes his heart against him. So we don't want to be so stingy and so jaded that our hearts are closed off to helping brothers and sisters in need. Many believe that the background for what John is saying here comes from Deuteronomy chapter 15. I'm going to read it to you. Deuteronomy 15, 7 to 9. It says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. What's Moses teaching here? We know the seventh year was the year in which debts were released. So what Moses is saying here. If a brother or sister come to you right before the seventh year and they ask you for help and the initial response in your heart is, this joker is about to borrow from me before the seventh year so that way he doesn't have to pay me back. Let's be honest. Many of us think this way. Even though we don't have a year of jubilee, If a brother or sister in Christ or even someone on the street were to approach us, all of the Rolodex of reasons why they don't deserve our help start coming through our minds. They must have squandered their money away. I've seen what kind of car they drive. They don't need my help. I've seen the size of their house. They don't need my help. All of these excuses start running through our minds because we are sinful, selfish, oftentimes greedy people. The law is teaching in Deuteronomy 15, don't have a jaded heart. Even if someone were to ask for money shortly before the seventh year, have you ever been guilty of not helping someone because in your own mind you didn't think they deserved it? Or because you have seen how they mismanaged things in the past? It's not that those things don't matter. We should always use prudence and wisdom. But if the bent of our heart is to say no and make them prove to us that they are worthy of our help, then perhaps we're actually the one with the wrong attitude. No Christian in this room is the perfect example of stewarding every penny they have for the glory of God. None of us is flawless. You could look at my life and pick on how I spend my money, I could certainly look at your life, I'm kidding, and see how you use your money. So we're all guilty of not necessarily stewarding every penny perfectly 
for the glory of God. But John sums up this passage with a very powerful statement in verse 18. This is what he says. He says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Now this verse is actually practically illustrated in James' epistle. You know the story. James says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? Now, we don't actually say that. So here's our equivalent to this story. In the South, we look at a terrible situation and we say, bless his heart. And then we keep moving on. This is what we do in the Deep South. Instead of actually attempting to help the person in need, we often look on them with compassion, say, bless your heart, and then we keep moving on. So as Christians, John is challenging the community that he is writing to as he is challenging and convicting us today. We should always be evaluating, always be evaluating to see if our words and talk match our deeds and truth. Not just at an individual level, but at a corporate level. Would this describe the body of Christ at First Baptist Dothan? While we certainly know that the words that we say matter, it's perhaps almost more important than ever that our deeds and our actions match up with what we say we believe. And by the way, throughout the history of the church, Christians have done a really good job, actually, of stepping up when needs need to be met. One of the greatest examples of this, early on in the history of the church, there was a great famine plague that broke out in the city of Caesarea, the beginning of the fourth century. And everyone fled Caesarea. They were going to anywhere else they possibly could across the Roman Empire in order to avoid the plague, in order to avoid the famine. But Eusebius, who's a church historian, actually tells us that there was one group of people that stayed back. And they took care of the sick. And they buried the bodies when they died from the plague. And they distributed food throughout the community. And Eusebius tells us at the end of this description that the group of people that stayed back to feed and bury dead bodies and care for those that had the plague was Christians. At great cost to themselves, many of them probably contracting the plague and dying, it was the Christians Eusebius says, who stayed back to bury the bodies of Roman citizens that did not even follow after Jesus. When everyone else fled, Christians stayed. The number one faith-based provider of foster care in the state of Alabama is the Alabama Baptist Children's Home. The number one provider of faith-based counseling in the state of Alabama is Pathways Professional Counseling, run by the Alabama Baptists. Now, I'm not tooting my horn at Baptists here. I'm trying to say that Christians have always led the way in taking care of the vulnerable among us. So the challenge that John gives us in this passage, Christians, 
we must demonstrate the, the love of Christ because the witness of the church is at stake. But let's remember that we don't do good works to manipulate people into becoming Christians. We do good works because God has commanded us to do so. But we should always let them know in the process of doing those good works that the reason we do them is because the Savior that we serve laid down his life for us. So we will now go out and lay down our lives for others. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would search our hearts and evaluate individually and corporately as a church. Do the words that we say match the actions and the deeds that we exhibit towards others? And where there are areas that we can improve, we want to confess our sin and repent. And where there are areas that we are doing well, continue to give us a desire to do so. And if there are any that are here today who perhaps for the first time have heard of the sacrificial love of Christ for sinners, I pray today that they would respond in repentance and faith. We thank you for loving us. And may we take seriously the command to love one another as the body of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.